Welcome to Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Today we continue our sermon series, Questions, the Beginnings of Faith. All of us have lost loved ones along the way. What happened to them? Where are they now? Join us for the message, What Happens When I Die? Good morning and welcome to worship here at Trinity United Methodist Church in Duncanville, Texas. Now all of us have lost some loved ones along the way. And sometimes we ask, what happened to them? And where are they now? So you can join us for the message we'll have a little bit later called, What Happens When I Die? Very important question. If you've not done so already this week, I invite you to make an offering to the ministry of this church. You can do that through our website, tumcd.org, through our church center app. You see also there the QR code that will take you to the page on our website where you can give uh, to the ministry of this church. Our scripture this morning comes from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 36. Listen now for the word of God. Now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are you discussing with each other while you walk about? They stood still looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place here in these days? He asked them, What things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over him, handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But he had hoped, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, besides all this, it is now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and said, told us that they had indeed seen a a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see him. Then he said to them, Oh, how foolish you are, And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and even enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them the things about himself and all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, he walked ahead of them as if he were getting on, going on. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. Because it is almost evening and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? That same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem And they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, 
the Lord has has been has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. They that told what had happened on the road, and now he had been taken to them in the breaking shown to them and made known to them in the breaking of the bread. While they were walking about talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. This is the word of, of God for the people of God. Seven years ago this month, Marion and Linda Scott, members of First United Methodist Church in Denton, as well as friends and neighbors of mine, were stabbed to death in their home by their younger son. Marion was stabbed 23 times, while Linda was stabbed 38 times. Police described the home as one of the bloodiest murder scenes they'd ever encountered. It was also seven years ago this month that I attended their double funeral. While their younger son remained in jail, their older son, his wife, and their, at the time, three-year-old daughter were at the funeral. As you might imagine, it was a very emotional service. The older son spoke about how wonderful his parents were, and I wondered just how he was possibly finding the strength to go on, much less speak at his parents' funeral. You see, in one afternoon, his whole family of origin had just been decimated. So how do you go on after something like this happens? And what feelings must he be having toward his brother? Anger, hurt, betrayal, confusion, love? After all, they're still brothers. I was amazed just how much the older son looked like his father. They had the same wiry hair and the same toothy grin. But his three-year-old daughter, however, almost took my breath away because she looked so much like her grandmother. The little girl was at the funeral, but she was, she was too young to understand what it all signified. And she played quietly but happily, just kind of flitting from one person to another. At one point, she even went up on the chancel area and plopped down beside the associate pastor and began to color. In the eulogies, it was mentioned multiple times how much Marion and Linda loved and lived for their granddaughter. And every time a eulogist mentioned the girl's name, she would look up and give a big smile and point to herself. She was too young to understand death and tragedy, but she knew that she was loved and valued and treasured by her grandparents. I found myself deeply touched by watching this child innocently play at a funeral of her grandparents who had died such violent and useless and tragic deaths. It reminded me of some simple truths that life goes on, that there's light amidst the darkness, and that Marion and Linda had left quite a legacy. For the older son, then the years ahead were going to be filled with grief and then the ongoing drama of his younger brother's journey through the criminal justice system. The brother was eventually found not guilty by reason of insanity, but he was then sentenced to a maximum security mental health facility where he remains to this day. I prayed then as I do now that as the years pass, whenever that older son looks into the shining eyes of his daughter, he'll see the face of his mother and find some comfort there. That granddaughter was three, but I was five at the first funeral that I ever attended. It was for a very elderly relative. I, th I think it 
I think she was a great aunt, but it was not someone I knew well. And it gave me a chance to observe a funeral for the first time without being caught up in any attending emotion. You see, at the age of five, I was beginning to have an understanding, a rudimentary understanding of death, but it all seemed still very far away in my everyday existence, something that happened only to the very old or very sick people. As we, as we all age, however, death seems closer and closer with the passing of each loved one. Now, some of us have experiences of experiencing death as children or teens or young adults, but for most of us, this deeper knowledge of death really begins to dawn on us in middle age. It's then we begin to really, really realize that one day we too will die. Yes, I know even children understand this basic fact that we all die, but as we get older, we begin to understand death in a much more visceral, a much more experiential way. And we begin to fully realize on this deepest level that as one Catholic priest wrote, so far the human mortality rate stands at 100%. This realization then can lead us to examine our own lives then in light of our eventual impending deaths. You see, all things in life come with an expiration, de an expiration date, and all earthly relationships will inevitably end. And so sometimes we may ask ourselves something like, will anyone care about this in 100 years? Sometimes we say about this to keep our own desires and ambitions in check. Sometimes we say this to ourselves to make sure we don't sweat the small stuff. But a saying like this, will it matter in 100 years, can also rob life of its meaning, of the meaning of what we do in life. Because a part of us does want the things that we say and do to matter in 100 years. We want our lives to have had meaning and significance. We want our our existence to have made some sort of difference in this world. You see, we crave to have an authentic life, a life that echoes into the future, a life where love has been fully realized. And a fully realized love, this kind of love that we crave, is a love so enduring that it would require a life without end to experience it fully. Now, Jesus' friends and followers certainly had the inevitability of death thrown into their faces. Because not only had their friend died, but he had been savagely tortured to death in front of at least some of their eyes. They felt that all they experienced about, uh, with Jesus and about Jesus had now been robbed of all of its meaning. What would any of this now mean in a hundred years? To make the whole situation even more confusing, some of the women disciples had come back from Jesus' tomb that morning with this wild tale of an angelic vision and claiming that he was alive. Others had run down to the tomb and found it empty with no sign of Jesus' body. In the scripture passage that Kathy read, two of Jesus' disciples are walking home from Jerusalem to their village in Emmaus that's about seven miles away from Jerusalem. They were discussing everything that had happened. They were just trying to wrap their minds around all that had taken place in these last three days and pondering what it might all mean. And as they walked, a stranger joined them in their discussion. And once they told him everything, he replied, 
Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. The stranger then began to explain all the disciples had reported in light of the scriptures. And as they came to Emmaus, they invited the stranger to stay and eat with them. And as the stranger took the bread, broke it, blessed it, and gave it to them, they suddenly realized that this was Jesus himself. And just as suddenly he vanished from before their eyes. And they looked at each other in astonishment and they said, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? And even though it was already evening, the two disciples made the two-hour walk all the way back to Jerusalem to tell the other disciples. And the Gospel of Luke goes on to say that as the two disciples from Emmaus were talking, Jesus himself appeared among them and greeted all the disciples, saying, Peace be with you. Over the next 40 days, Jesus would appear multiple times to the disciples. Every other biography in the history of the world ends in death. But in Jesus' biography, death does not have the final word. In fact, his resurrection signaled a new beginning. God was doing a new thing in Jesus and offering all of us a sign of hope that has been unprecedented in human history. Death, the ultimate enemy, had been conquered. It can be hard to know to, what to make of the resurrection. You see, according to three of the four Gospels that we find in our Bibles, even the disciples who personally experienced and saw the presence of the risen Christ had a very hard time believing what their own eyes were telling them. So I think God is very sympathetic to any doubts that we bring to this story. I know for many of us, believing in the resurrection has never been an issue, but I know others of us have harbored some questions about what really happened on that first Easter morning. And I think God's okay with that. As I said, even the disciples who saw it with their own eyes couldn't quite believe what they were seeing. What it's always boiled down to for me is that according to history, all but one of those 11 remaining disciples that were closest to Jesus ended up dying a martyr's death. This includes the disciple that we later labeled as Doubting Thomas. It includes all the disciples that couldn't quite believe what their eyes were telling them. It means that even the disciples who harbored doubt in that moment were eventually willing to die in their conviction that Jesus had indeed been raised from death and that they had personally interacted with him. They were convinced that resurrection mattered. So what does the resurrection then mean for us? Well, first of all, it means that in the Holy Spirit, the presence of the living Christ remains with us as we journey through this world. It means that new life is the ever-present reality We've not been abandoned to our own devices. Christ of the Holy Spirit will work within us to complete the work that God began at our very conception. Secondly, the resurrection also means that death has been vanquished. Death does not have that final word. When Jesus conquered death, he conquered it for everyone. So therefore, we too will experience resurrection. As you see, for the Christian Death is not a period, it's just a comma. 
It's a brief pause before we enter into a new life with Christ. Third, the resurrection with its promise of life without end opens the way for us to experience the enduring love of God. It places our lives here and now in, and in an eternal context that then gives our life meaning. Because you see, what we do will matter in a hundred years, though perhaps not always in the way that we anticipate or predict. Resurrection frees us from the fear of death, and it consequently then frees us from the fear of living. When we recite the Apostles' Creed, we say we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. And whatever else this doctrine may entail, it means that God will redeem in the end all of us. Not just our souls and spirits, but our whole selves, our bodies, souls, and spirits. There's going to be a continuity between who we are now and who we will be then. And so all of, we all ask, what's, what will heaven be like? And the Bible uses several metaphors to describe heaven. Heaven is like a beautiful garden filled with every good fruit. Heaven is like a new gleaming city with golden streets and gates of pearl. Heaven is like a royal throne room where we worship God forever. The late Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu is quoted as saying, I wonder whether they have rum and coke in heaven. <laughs> Maybe it's too mundane a pleasure, but I hope so, as a drink at the end of the day, except, of course, the sun never goes down there. Oh, man, this heaven is going to take some getting used to. The book, uh, this book that I have here, describes heaven in this way. One consistent theme is that heaven is where we are free from things that hold us back in this world. We're free from sabotaging our relationship with God through sin. We're, three, we're free from the violence in the world and the malice that ruins relationships. We're free to love others and to love ourselves. Free from the ceaseless competition and self-loathing that character, characterizes so much of our present lives. Christians contend that, contend that human beings are most real in heaven because they are simply themselves. Our resurrected life will not in any way be less than our present existence. In the richness of our relationships and the depth of our intimacy with God, it will in fact be more. So what then is hell? Well, over the centuries, theologians have vacillated over whether hell is an eternal place of torment or simply a place where those who have chosen to reject God simply cease to exist. One thing I am sure of, hell is not a place where an angry, vengeful God consigns people in retaliation for their evil actions. Hell is a place for those who have chosen for themselves to reject God. Because you see, we have free will to reject God, and God respects our free will decision. God will always love us, but we are never forced to love God. In the meantime, however, remember that if we believe that our loved ones who have passed are with God, and if we believe that God is everywhere omnipresent, then in a way, our loved ones are still with us. 
I've told you before about uh, a few years ago, I was counseling a woman who was only a few weeks away from dying of cancer. And she had three young adult children. And I told her, because my own mother had died, and I knew this to be true, I was able to tell her that her relationship as a mother with her children was not going to end with her passing. Her relationship with her children would change, but it would nevertheless endure. There's a sermon illustration that's been used for probably at least 100 years. And I've encountered this illustration myself several times. And it's, it's such a good illustration, however, that I think that's why preachers still use it to this day. And I particularly like it because my grandfather was a country doctor. And so this very old sermon illustration goes like this. There was an old country doctor who practiced medicine before the age of cars. And he would go from farm to farm in his horse-drawn carriage making house calls. And he would always take his faithful dog along with him. And one day the doctor was visiting uh, the home of a man who was dying. And the doctor took his vital signs and then sat beside the man and gently told him that the time was closing in, the time was near. The man asked him, Doc, what is death like? What's on the other side? And just at that moment, the doctor's dog began to whimper and scratch at the front door of the house. And the doctor replied, Do you hear that? That's my dog at your front door. He's never been in your house. He has no, no idea what it's like in here. All he knows is that his master is on the other side of that door. And if his master is on the other side of that door, then this must be a safe place. It's a place where he wants to be. So always remember that it is our master who is on the other side of death's door. I believe that after suffering the horrific trauma of being stabbed to death by their own son, Marion and Linda entered into their master's presence and are now held in their master's peace. And that one day both of their sons and their granddaughter will also enter into that peace. Remember that like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, that in the meantime, our master Jesus walks beside us incognito in this life. But we'll see him face to face in the eyes of a stranger, and we'll hear his voice as scripture is proclaimed, and we will taste him every time we break the bread of communion. So keep your eyes and ears open because you never know when and where Jesus is going to show up. But know that he is beside you even when you cannot perceive him because he walks beside us in this life and in the next. Amen. Now remember, you can always find recordings of our service on our website, tumcd.org, on our Facebook page, uh, or on our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. And now please receive this benediction. People of the road, rejoice, for it is God who is traveling with you. People of the road, rejoice as you bless each fellow traveler with the face of Christ. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
We hope today's service was a blessing to you. Join us every Sunday here on Facebook Live at 11 a.m. Next Sunday, we'll continue our sermon series, Questions, The Beginnings of Faith. Join us for the message, Can I Trust God? You can always access our services through our website, tumcd.org, our Facebook page, and our podcast, Jane's Most Excellent Church Adventure. If you like what you're hearing, you can also support our ministry through your gift through our website, tumcd.org. God bless you in the week ahead. We'll see you Sunday at Trinity United Methodist Church.